Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This is Walkins. Welcome with Bridget Fetisy. I'm Bridget Fetisy, and you are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You know the drill. Please subscribe, rate, comment, share, reach out, tell your friends, send smoke signals, whatever. We love your feedback and we want to hear from you. This week on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome W. Keith Campbell, PhD, professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. He is the author of more than 150 scientific articles, a personality textbook, and the books, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself, How to Deal with a One-Way Relationship, The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement, The Handbook of Narcissism and Narcissistic Personality Disorder, Theoretical Approaches, Empirical Findings, and Treatments, and The New Science of Narcissism. His work on narcissism has appeared all over. He has been interviewed by most major news outlets, appeared on leading podcasts, and authored the popular TED-Ed lesson, The Psychology of Narcissism. Think we see a pattern here. Buckle up and enjoy. I'm with W. Keith Campbell, everybody. Hello, Keith. Welcome. Hello, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm really excited to sit down and talk to you. Narcissism is like the buzzword of this decade, I think. (laughs) And I'm so fascinated by really my first question for you is what made you kind of focus on this? My real question is, who in your family is a narcissist? (laughs) I know it's just the the answer, you know, is research is me search. So like, who screwed you up, man? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Honestly, I got into this for really kind of theoretical reasons. I just, people's distort reality all the time because we don't like what reality tells us. So when somebody says you're not that attractive, we're like, yeah, I'm a little more attractive than that. When somebody says you you were cheating, uh, you know, you were a bad driver, you're like, I'm a pretty good driver. And, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than most people. I'm pretty humble. So there's a lot of bias in people. And that was an interesting topic. And what I sort of found in graduate school was that people who are narcissistic do this stuff a lot. So mm. we're all kind of distorting the world to make ourselves look better. Some, some people that look worse if they're really depressed, but mostly to make ourselves more important, more special. We want to be the center of the world. But people who are narcissistic really do this a lot. And so I, I got in it for that reason, which is one more theoretical. And then partly I was interested in Buddhism and the non-self and non-attachment. And I couldn't figure out any of that stuff. I couldn't figure out how to right. study the non-self. So I'm like, let's study the over-the-top self. Let's see how that mm. works. And if we figure that out, maybe, you know, it'll help us shed light on, you know, all the other cells we deal with. So it's kind of boring. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just, it's a bit of a nerdy thing. And then when I started doing it, you know, I started saying narcissism, then Columbine happened. And I was sharing a basement office with Gene Twangy, who's a social psychologist and a writer. We had a postdocs to get an office and she looks at me and she's like this is narcissism listen to these kids they want to have yeah. tarantino make their movie you know and they they were just giving questions straight off the narcissistic personality inventory so we got wow. into that and then you know and then we had social media come along and i was oh my god this is crazy so i had a grad student laura um start studying narcissism facebook and this has been 10 12 years ago and then selfies happened <laughs> 
It's like, yeah. oh my God, people are taking pictures of themselves and sharing them. That's insane. What you know, Van Gogh was the only person who took pictures of himself before. They were self-portraits, but now everyone's right. doing it. And then politics. So it just keeps it's like the gift that keeps on giving uh for research topic, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested because it seems like your most recent book is even pre TikTok, which is like <laughs> narcissism on fire. I was looking for any kind of reference of TikTok because I went on TikTok last night and I was like, holy shit, this is it's like crack cocaine. <laughs> you know, it it feels to me. And it's all so affected. And I was trying to, I was, I was interested in it because I was trying to understand why some of these young kids have the affectations they have, but it's really because they spend all day on TikTok and that is their substitute for a personality. They're not reading books. They're not doing really anything. Even like in your book, you talk about geek culture, which is something I also want to talk to you about because at least with you know, Dungeons and Dragons, for instance, you're using your imagination. Oh, you're yeah. coming up with whole worlds. You're, it would be, you're creating characters and storylines and telling stories. And, and this, you know, there are some creative TikToks, obviously, but for the most part, it seems like it's just people lip syncing and trying to look pretty. It's like, it, it's crazy. I, um, so you bring up so many things. One is science is always driving two years in the rearview mirror. I mean, that's just the yeah, nature of science. <laughs> and when people are like, why doesn't science, what does science tell us about COVID? I'm like, nothing for another two years. Because <laughs> right. science sucks in the short term. We just can't do it. But right. so our, you know, we, we finally kind of figured out social, you know, personality in Facebook and just in time for no one to use Facebook anymore. And then right. we started studying Instagram. We got a pretty good idea of Instagram. And then people started migrating to Snapchat and then to TikTok. But one of the things I see, and this, this may or not may not be what's going on, and I really want to hear your opinion because I'm not a TikToker, is that we found kids using social media, there's a lot of narcissism early on, you know, 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago. And a lot of self-promotion. And then we started seeing young people, especially young women and girls, feeling depressed or socially anxious because of this. And part of the reason was there's a lot of social comparison. It's like, look how hot these people are and look at me and I'm not that attractive. And part of it is that FOMO, they call it, like fear of missing out. So right, like, fear of missing out. like all my friends are having this this great life, you know, and I'm not. And and uh so they're kind of in this constant existential crisis of looking at how wonderful yeah. everyone's life is. Like you're stuck in this Woody Allen movie. And I noticed people started moving off of Instagram to get these fake Insta Instagrams. They get private Instagram accounts right. with less pressure and then move to Snapchat. So it would kind of disappear. Right. And then TikTok happened. And I don't understand TikTok. I, I just, I, yeah. I, it, because on one hand, it's like, it's sort of silly. It's not like your classic... <laughs> venue for narcissism not like instagram you know it's not like you sit there and polish it up and put it out there there's keith is keith slash adonis you know but it's self-promotional it's attention seeking it's you know so I, i'm curious what you think because i was kind of hoping these were a bunch of nice kids just out there having a good time with their moms i mean it is but then you look at the I, what's so fascinating to me and i think a lot about this stuff i mean an inordinate amount of time thinking about the topic that you discuss and these kinds of intersections of 
you know, youth and personality. And now we've basically monetized narcissism. Like, how do you tell a kid? And we saw this with YouTube and YouTube feels, I bet YouTubers feel like old people compared to the young people on TikTok. But how do you tell a young kid, don't spend your time on TikTok when they're people a couple of years older than them are making millions of dollars and that have brought the entire family in. You know, these people who are the huge TikTok stars, they're, it's not just them now. Now they're entire families and they're trying to start their like reality shows on YouTube. And I don't know if you've ever read the book Mediated by Thomas Dagen's Zen Gotisha. I, I reference this book in almost every podcast. I have to have him on. This guy, he wrote about a lot of this, but in 2006, and this was pre-social media. And he predicted all of this, but he has a whole chapter about the the cult of the child, but also just the understanding of everybody's role. So as we've every everything has been flattering us, as everything is self reflexive, as we've become more narcissistic as a culture in general, everyone becomes like this character of themselves and knows what their role is. And he uses Princess Diana's. When she died, he uses her, the, everybody in the world, it was like a hypermediated time. Yeah. And it was really this kind of beginning of the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle, which I think has also exacerbated this. And everybody knew that they were the people putting the flowers, the grievers, like everyone knew their place in this kind of, you know, all the world's a stage literally now. Yes. It's, it's crazy. I, um, you've just brought up like six million things I'm i know sorry un- well no i love it i just this is one of my favorite thing i'm just trying to break it apart in pieces so what i go back to with a lot of this is first i go back to the kardashians and yeah. kylie jenner who i think is a genius and should be studied <laughs> in schools and i think she got <laughs> and i i've told this story a lot but i was teaching my grad seminar and the students you know they never started watching something else and they're all watching their phones i was what the hell is this and it was kylie jenner driving a ferrari down the street right. and i'm like you know it just crushed me i'm this beautiful car being driven on a terrible la street poor it was terrible. yeah so i was like oh my god she got it she's a genius she disintermediated everybody and went right to the people it was yeah. brilliant. She took out the she took out the producer. That she took out the the network. She took out the oh, money yeah. people. She wiped all it all out. I'm like, this is such genius. This is incredible. And on one hand, I go, that's the future. I got to celebrate it. You know that. You know, I can't hate people who are killing it by breaking things and, and changing things. But when you see somebody, and obviously Paris Hilton was the kind of the role model before before the Kardashians of somebody who's being famous for just the sake of celebrity of just being famous. And then with a lot of like, with Princess die with a lot of bathos, you know, just kind of this over the top emotive stuff or just drama, I guess there's a lot of money in it, but it's also incredibly destructive because how do you get, if you're trying to get ahead by being just kind of basically entertaining, you're not building anything. If you're trying to get ahead by being the smartest or the best athlete or the best surfer, the best dancer, the best, you know, speaker, whatever, comedian, there's a skill set, you know, there's a process, you grow, grow, grow. But if you're just trying to get attention, you're not really growing that much. So I get worried about, you know, people getting off track that way. 
on the other hand, these TikTok skills are really important and these kids are going to learn them and in 20 years, they're going to run this show. <laughs> or as my friend said last night, when I was researching the TikTok phenomenon, like none of this is sustainable. Society is going to collapse because our brains are all going to turn to pudding. <laughs> you know, because well, like, after five minutes, he's like, I do not get this. And, and I was on, you know, I don't either, but I'm not a product of, they say that anyone really from Gen X and above, but Gen X in particular is like the skeptic gen. We're, we're kind of known as a skeptic generation because we're the last generation that remembers life before the internet. My nephews who love TikTok grew up with a phone in their hand. You know, they had, they have always had access to technology. I tell this story often about how they would always laugh at me trying to use a TV remote because I didn't understand TiVo. And they were like, this is embarrassing. They're five mocking me. And this is a weird dynamic. I feel like this has always probably been the case, although it's much more exacerbated, where kids think they're smarter than their parents because they are smarter than their parents with technology, but that doesn't mean they know shit about life. Right. But this is like a weird phenomenon that I haven't seen enough written about of how these kids are like, my parents are idiots because they don't know how to use a phone. Yeah, technology always leads to status inversions because the new tech gets mm. picked up by kids. Uh, the other time you see that, and maybe people write about it more, is immigration. So mm. if I moved, if I took my family and said, things are going to hell, we're moving to, you know, we're moving to Germany. I couldn't speak German. I'm too slow and old, but my kids would pick it up fast. And then they'd be the right. one going to the doctor with me and they'd be the one filling out my taxes and stuff. Oh, and so you get that kind of inversion in that case too, where the power structure breaks and the traditional, you know, the wisdom of age gets kind of crushed by the, the, the expertise in tech. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is a, this is a legit phenomenon when things change because the people who are, People who get hit by the changes are going to, everyone gets hit, but the young people get hit the most. And with, with tech, you notice like with social media, what happened is, you know, the kids were using Facebook. It was all college students. It was limited to college right. students. And then everyone got to use it. By the time my mom was using Facebook five or six years later, the kids weren't using Facebook anymore. They got no. into something cooler. And yeah. that's the cycle that keeps going. So even when the when the old start to catch up with the technology, the kids are figuring out something hot. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing, too, is there's always these articles with people on the left kind of clutching their pearls about how right wing media spreads on Facebook. And I'm like, yeah. Because it's basically the virtual equivalent of a Dell Web community. It's like a senior home, you know? <laughs> it's mostly boomers and mostly, like, of course, conservative media is going to spread there. It's like going to a, a community in Florida. Like, it's just the virtual equivalent of that. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just that that's the demographic that's existing and communicating there. Right. I mean, it's not great what's spreading there, but it's definitely part of it is just like, well, yeah, if you you take out all of the people under 40 and have people spreading stuff around, this is ultimately, you know, yeah, you're going to see more of this stuff spread there. Well, yeah, the, a lot of these are just selection effects. Who gets into these yeah. things and who's not? And the other point you brought up about narcissism, and I, I sometimes think about, I don't know if this makes any sense at all, but I'm going to try it with you. So. 
Bitcoin is in the news a lot. And the way Bitcoin works is it's, I don't know how it works, but the way I understand it works is it's kind of a ledger, or ba- a balance sheet, and people are paid to mine these coins. They're kind of paid. And so the, the way this, the thing that keeps this network going is you pay certain people to run these mining operations and they're making a little money on the side. They're making a little bit of a hustle here and that keeps the whole network going. Well, Facebook, you're not really paying anybody. So what you have is the network run on the back of people who are self-promoting and attention seeking because it's an attention economy. So the people who are seeking attention are the ones who are going to drive it. So it's really in part built on the back of narcissism. I mean, you just, it's just a network that's built on the back of ego and attention seeking. There are other things too. There's humor, there's information, there's lots of things, but ego is what keeps us going. And if you got rid of the arrogant attention seeking SOBs, the networks would fall apart because right. no one's talking. I mean, this was my other question to you. The the biggest one as I read your book, because I'm always, I'm hyper. I grew up, I think, in a, a family where it's been told to me by, you know, obviously someone can't diagnose like a primary care provider without really knowing them. But from based on what some of my therapists have heard and people in rehab have heard about one of my primary care providers exhibits a lot of the like NPD traits, the narcissistic personality disorder traits. In fact, when our current president was running, I was like, holy crap, this is like dealing with this person in my life. And uh, it was it was a weird thing. I was like, oh, I know how to handle this guy. <laughs> so like, you just have to become a psychological ninja. No problem. But it would and, work. But I was always told by this person that I was a narcissist. So I'm hyper aware of it and worried that I'm a narcissist. And even reading your book, I, you know, and um, as my therapist has said, yes, you can have traits of narcissism. All of us do without having the personality disorder necessarily. And in fact, if you're raised by somebody with the personality disorder, you will pick up and mime some of those traits. But my real question after reading your book is, is anyone with a big platform, even like mine on Twitter, a narcissist? Like, do you have to be a narcissist to break through? That is, and I won't be. I won't be offended if you say yes. <laughs> no, I, I I wonder this a lot because I I talk to a lot of people who are, who are sort of high performing celebrity types, and to be successful in the media, you have to be willing to go out there and put it out. You have to be willing to put yourself out there and you have to willing to get hammered by like a million people telling you, you suck. And that's very hard. So you need to have a very thick skin. You can't be narcissistic in the sense that you're sort of hypersensitive and dealing with credit. You know, you can't be hypersensitive to criticism all the time. That more vulnerable side, you just get beat up. You'd probably be drinking all the time Mm -hmm. to stop it or whatever. I'm sure celebrities do this. They probably just have ways of coping with it. Um, so you need some of that extroversion, that grandiosity to do it, to be, to be successful. In the research, Dr. Drew did this paper with Mark Young, who's a professor at Southern Cal in accounting. I don't know if he's still there. but uh, And they gave narcissistic personality inventories to celebrities. And the scores are somewhat high. And it's stand-up comedians have relatively high narcissism scores. And when I mean relatively high, I'm talking like, I think the average, and I'm off the top of my edge, I think the average is 19 instead of 16. So it's not, it was like half a half a standard deviation, not a big difference, but higher. Uh, Reality television, you get higher. So I wondered about that. 
And I think part of it is, I mean, I do a lot of public speaking, but it's more academic stuff. You got to have an ego to go out there and entertain people. Yeah, but yeah. You have to believe people want to hear you, which is always hilarious to me. But the problem is, if you're if you have the more antagonistic pieces of narcissism, that sense of entitlement, the sense of selfishness, the sense that you're superior to other people, you're going to drive people away. So if you're in, so mm. in the entertainment business, they say, you know, be nice to people on the way up because you're going to see them on the way down. And mm. um, there are people who are, they call divas who are impossible to work with and difficult. And they're people who are good to work with. My guess is that people who have some of that drive and ambition and extroversion and sociability that's, that's part of narcissism, but also can get along with people are probably the most successful. Because even if you're in media and you're kind of a prick, no one wants to work with you. Right. So that narcissism can become self-destructive after a point. All that said, my guess is that there's a pull for narcissism, but it's being weeded out in the process when you're dealing with groups. Right. So you have to work with other people. If you're that narcissistic, you're not going to have friends or a network. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, I think that it's funny. I always say, I don't know what I hate more. The fact that I have to self-promote or the fact that I'm good at it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure which one bothers me more because if, I, I know that it's part of my industry. Although I will say, and you know, Joe Rogan is a, a on a different, completely different level, almost his own level stratosphere. But Something I really respect about him as just a human being is that that man seems immune. He does not acknowledge praise or criticism. You know, he really just keeps making his content, focuses on the work, stays out, is uncomfortable with, seems uncomfortable with a lot of, you won't see him retweet a flattering article about him. You won't see him really addressing anybody who's critical of him. And I think that as somebody who is at that level and in that space and is a stand-up comedian, he doesn't exhibit to me too much narcissism, you know, for a guy, he's like so curious about other people. And so, so curious. I think his curiosity about things outside of him far outweighs whatever narcissistic personality traits might, it might take for him to kind of get, where he is now that being said that might have been different 10 years ago you know you gotta fight your way up i don't i'm seeing him we're seeing him i'm talking about the joe i know now and i have known for the but i've known him for ever i mean he's always been a he's always been a decent human being so i also think he's you know he's never treated comedians who weren't like big names differently he's always been nice to people no matter who they were so i think that some of it is just uh him being him yeah but that's i would say he's a good argument against the uh, that when i was asking myself this question i was like he's a strong case for the fact that maybe that isn't true that you can have like a massive platform and not be a total you know narcissist <laughs> but you have to my guess is you have to have a strong personality you have to be driven right. you have to be curious i mean now I don't I don't know Joe Rogan. I mean I did the podcast. He's a nice dude, but we're not bros or anything. When I first met him, I started laughing because I mean inside my head I was laughing because I'm like the first trade. If I had to describe him to anybody, I would use the word mana, 
which is a Polynesian term for sort of warrior energy that sits in your solar plexus. Yeah. And, and so it's one of those totally. crazy cases where as a personality psychologist, I would have to go outside of the English language to pick a word. And so when I met him, I was like, my God, this guy's got all this warrior energy. So I kind of reminds me of like a lot yeah, of the big surfers I've met over the years. Like, so, so that was kind of my vibe. And, but very high openness to experience, which is this trait we talk about, like openness is like a combination of curiosity and interest in, you know, new experiences, novelty seeking. And, and I'm very open. I'm sure you are. I mean, I think that trait of openness is a way you can relate to people, but you're, people aren't offended by you because you're more curious. You're not being mean. You're like kind of stoked and excited and, and interested. So you can have a very powerful personality, but not be as uh, toxic to people. Cause it's not about you. Is this a way you can kind of mitigate some of I, I mean, I guess it's it's such a hard. So I've heard from psychologists that you when and I've heard this from therapists that when they recognize that somebody might have narcissistic personality disorder, they'll kind of sneakily find a way to get Ship rid them of off. them because they feel like it's not treatable. Do you feel like narcissistic personality disorder is something you can treat? How do you get outside the matrix of yourself if you're trapped in that? Yeah. You wouldn't even know you were trapped. I mean, that that is the matrix. I mean, that matrix of the self that the old psychoanalyst used to call it the narcissistic cocoon. But it's that idea that you Mm. kind of get wrapped in your own head. What you're saying about therapists is something I've heard a lot. And Mm -hmm. part of it is the people that are hard to work with because more personality disorders. So you give them some positive feedback and send them to somebody else. (laughs) People who are narcissistic are easy to manipulate. But so in turn, okay, I'll just back it up. In terms of treatment, for a long time, people thought narcissists or people with narcissistic personality disorder couldn't be changed, couldn't be treated, couldn't be helped. Part of the reason was they said personality was really fixed. Once we had our personalities fixed, and maybe it was when we're young, that's what Freud would say. Maybe it was when we're 18, which is what William James would say. We're kind of stuck. It turns out from the personality science side, this isn't the case. People change throughout their lives. It's really wonderful. I mean, you can grow. I mean, I'm growing. I'm 54. I'm growing. I'm stoked. I mean, it's wonderful to have this opportunity. So people who are narcissistic, like everyone else, can change. So to be able to change, you need two ingredients. You need to have the motivation to change, and you need a, a appropriate way to do it. So, you know, sometimes people are like, I'm going to diet, but they do it wrong, so it never works. So they're motivated, but they can't really do it because the diet doesn't work. So to change your narcissism, you have to be motivated to do it and have a technique. So what you find in the in the research is that there are many people who have narcissistic traits who see problems with it. And this was surprising to me. This is sort of the new science of narcissism. This is something that's relatively new, is that there are these people out there that are like, I, lo- I love who I am, I'm kicking ass, but... I wish I had more better relationships. I wish I had better love. I wish I had better connection. Look at those people. They love, they have love. I don't have that. I kind of want that. Right. So you see that gap in people. So there is some issue with motivation. And then the question is, how do you make it work? Ideally, I'd say, you know, Bridget, we've done all this science. Science is the best. We've done these randomized clinical trials and we've studied and we know what works with narcissism. And the thing is, we didn't do any of that. What we have is a bunch of kind of half-ass kind of mediocre clinical trials that have used people who are narcissistic. And just because just the federal government doesn't fund narcissism research, it's not because we couldn't do it. It's just no, no money right. for it. 
um, until they make a drug. If they came up with a vaccine, we could do it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> I'm getting a little dark. I'll stop. But so <laughs> no, so, darkness is welcome oh, on oh, this podcast. Okay. <laughs> I, I tend to go there, but I, I don't want to live there. So no, I, I, I agree. So what we find in the literature is people who, who are narcissistic, who go into therapy, report being able to change. But the big challenge is once they get in there, a lot of people drop out. So there's a mm. real problem of changing people who are narcissistic because they don't want to go through the process of change because they kind of like themselves. I mean, if you're depressed mm. and you're like, I really want to change, therapy's hard because it's even if you're depressed, it's hard to really look at yourself and be honest. Imagine if you like yourself and you're like, I'm the best. And like, let's be a little more honest, Keith. Do you really like yourself? Take another harder look. Like, not, I don't want to take a harder look. Kind of like this look. I say this all the time about Trump. I'm like, imagine if you think the world revolves around you and then it literally does. Like, <laughs> were you wrong? No, that's you right. I, I, um, How can you tell him he's doing anything wrong if this is what he's already always believed and it's all being reaffirmed constantly? Constantly. And and I don't, I, I can't, when, when people are like, I'm going to give Trump advice. I'm like, no, you're not. He's not listening. No, you're not. You. He's never going to listen. No, you're to not. You. It's not going to happen. I think he maybe listens to his daughter 10% of the time. Like, I think she's probably the only one who can eke through how long that stays is completely dependent. But I feel like his Ivanka is probably the only one who can get through to him at all. And everyone else, it's like, good I, luck. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've never met him. I would love to. It'd be really interesting. I talked to one person who worked on a show a long time ago before he was Trump. And I, you know, because I was doing a shoot, you know, reality thing. I'm like, what, what was it like? And the guy's like, it's like Trump would just walk around and he'd just say, yeah, I knew Michael Jackson. He'd just walk by. That was kind of, <laughs> just going to show off. Didn't was hung out with his lawyer the whole time. Yeah, I feel like you'd probably, he's probably pretty personable. You know, I think that yeah. he's probably pretty charming. If, if he, he wants, wants to, to be. be. And he wasn't he wasn't out yeah. there being mean. He just and they also said he's kind of what he appeared. Now I don't know. I mean, this is how bad it is. I'm supposed to I mean, I I have never uh aspired to understand Donald Trump. I just I study narcissism and he's his brand was narcissism. I mean, Trump's, you know, eighties, nineties brand is I'm a narcissist and I'm killing it. Do you think that so I've have you ever read Care of the Soul by Thomas More? Maybe in grad school. He's a Jungian dude. Yeah, I, I bet in grad yeah. school. I probably was reading Robert Bly and Thomas More and stuff. Yeah. I read this book like once every year just because A, it saved my life at a time when I was really going through it. And B, he has a whole chapter about self-love and the myth of narcissists and narcissism. And he was really, in you know, interestingly pointed out that it's America's brand. Like if you yes. were going to sit America down on a couch, it would be diagnosed with narcissism and whether or not we can, the, the gap between our ideals, our, our, you know, fantasy idea of ourself as a nation and being able to match that, which is in realistic, you know, in reality, not true. And I wonder, because I was rereading it, just thinking about your book and, I was thinking, you know, when I read this, this was pre-Trump the, fir the first time, I wonder if he's not just a perfect symptom of that aspect of our culture. I mean, isn't he the perfect representative I, for America? Um, 
I'm laughing because we, we did a study on this a few years ago, really tried to look at American culture. And by asking people, you know, describe the, the kind of the typical American. It's a way you can measure culture. It's, I won't go into it, but it's just one way you can get at it. And American culture is seen as incredibly narcissistic, not just by the rest by of the, the world, of the by world. U.S. citizens. I'm like, if you ask people, like, what's the typical yeah. American? They're like, they're the most arrogant person on earth. How are you? I'm okay. How's your friends? Yeah. They're a little more narcissistic than me, but they're pretty good. You know, but the typical American, so our culture is very narcissistic. And Trump, I mean, to me, he's he kind of is one of those huckster carnival characters that we've had, you know, a little bit P.T. Barnum, and he was always involved in wrestling. So I kind of take P.T. Barnum with, you know, wrestling with developers who I grew up with a bunch of developers, and I can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's a character. uh, And then you add to that the power of positive thinking, you know, this like, I'm only going to say positive stuff all the time, kind of the classic uh, Norman Vincent Peale. And you mix that together and you get you get a character. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't hate when people don't understand how he won his popularity. I feel like it's a it's a I'm not sure what that is or it, it seems like a fundamental misunderstanding of our country and or a denial of a part of our country that they just don't want to see or the or some kind of elitism mixed with not under because from my perspective traveling around the world and seeing the way people talked about americans and hearing the way they viewed americans when people when i was in the uk and ireland right before the election they would ask me who do you think is going to win i'm like trump <laughs> like i don't know why this is even curious and i think that's why you know before we started recording i was talking about the piece i'm writing about what i got wrong more than anything I am surprised he didn't win in a landslide because I feel like, you know, I, I one of the tweets that I had before he won in 2015 was Kim Kardashian made $75 million last year. Trump will be our next president. I feel like culturally that's where our values are. So it made sense to me. And I was like, perhaps I overestimated our tolerance for dysfunction and also overestimated our desire for entertainment. Maybe people are just burned out. You know, I, I think there is that because like you said that, and again, I'm not diagnosing him as a narcissist with personality disorder. He does seem to have a lot of those traits. It, it does seem like somebody with that will burn people out. If you have that kind of character in your life, they end up becoming so toxic that you're like, I got to cut you out of my life. Yeah. And I feel like America kind of was like, okay, we need to, we need to cut this out. I look around and I see people are so psyoped right now. They're scared to death. They're panicked. They don't know where they are. They're not sleeping. They're depressed. They're, you know, they're taking more drugs or drinking too much, you know, people are screwed up. Yeah, it's bad. And, you know, the, the entertainment value goes away, I think, when things are really bad. You know, it's just that you, Trump, you know, you go, you want leadership that seems more competent, maybe, than, than more entertaining. But right, right. But my guess is, and I thought Trump would win. And I don't even like talking about this because I was hated. So I don't either. But there's also like 2% of me that's, you know, the other thing that I hate about, and this leads back to your book and the kind of void that's created, is that there's a 
pretty small percentage of me. I can't say with 100% certainty that he didn't win in a landslide, which drives me crazy. Like, given all the evidence, yes, he won. But there is a very small part of me, and this has been the erosion of trust in our all of our institutions that I'm like, "Ah!" who knows? Who knows? (laughs) I, yeah, I, um, the one piece that I thought that people didn't talk about enough with him is he seems authentic early on. Yeah, he is. Trump is Trump. Trump's not doing anything for anyone. And authenticity goes a long way with people when they think everyone is a corrupt Even if, and this is what I've been saying for years, I said people are so desperate for authenticity, they will choose an authentic asshole. Yes. It doesn't matter. It just is that they were like, well, at least we know where we stand with him. He's He is being himself. <laughs> yeah, and people like, Trump called this person a dog. And he's and I'm like, yeah, Trump, yeah. that's what he kind of does. He does that to everyone. Yeah. You know, if Trump called me a dog, I'd be like kind of stoked. I'm like, I made it. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> As as Ben Shapiro always says, it's baked into the cake. You know, that is baked into people know that about him when people are like, I can't believe it. I'm like, really? Why are we still getting shocked about this? The other thing, and I think this is something that comes from the, you know, we've studied presidential narcissism. And, you know, when, when Trump was impeached, I was like, you know, we were tweeting my, my buddies, like, we predicted this. Science worked. And so it's... <laughs> And, and but the the other thing in in fifty years, guess who's going to have movies made about him? Trump, right. Biden, Jimmy Carter, you know George right. Bush, Trump, Trump. People are going to yeah. dress as Trump for Halloween in fifty years. They're going to he's going to be remembered because of his ego, just like Teddy Roosevelt was. I think Obama was a massive narcissist. I mean, a, a very very self disciplined yes. narcissist. Like that guy is, is, you know, I'm not, and Bill Clinton. Well, uh, so I'm going to, let me respond first to Obama because it's, I heard this question. So people forget history now that we've kind of wiped, we're kind of year zero, but for the young people in the audience, when, when Obama was president, there was a time where the, um, the American Psychiatric Association was talking about getting rid of narcissistic personality disorder. They were trying to redo the personality disorders because long, a lot of reasons for it, but they were like, they're too complicated. They overlap. Let's get rid of them. And narcissism was one they wanted to cut. There was an outcry. And one of the theories, like a, a theory I addressed on NPR. So like a leading theory was that Obama was doing this because then he wouldn't have a personality disorder. <laughs> so. <laughs> But And you didn't get canceled? <laughs> that was before they canceled people. But what I would say about Obama is, you know, clearly anybody who's a president is pretty self-important. Obama comes across to me as very smug and not really that likable because of that. Um, but he doesn't have a very uh, – he doesn't have a lot of extroversion in him. He doesn't seem to be that driven. In the way somebody like Trump or Clinton would be. I'm trying to keep the politics balanced. So somebody like Clinton is so extroverted and so driven and so charming and and such really kind of a horrible person on top of it. Um, but probably yeah. really <laughs> likable. Like if I mean, I don't know now, but if we met the young Clinton, it would be we'd probably have a great oh, time. Oh, totally. Right? So he yeah. has that that kind of drive and extroversion. And Obama just doesn't really have that in his personality so much he's like you said very controlled it's very 
I don't I don't really get Obama's personality. Like I just don't see a lot of it. I mean, I think it borders on like sociopathic and so, like it's like it feels adjacent, you know, it's it's so disciplined and tightly controlled that I'm like this is like next level and I can't figure out if it's just next level image management, right. you know, that hyper consciousness. I see this even with like Beyonce and Jay-Z. Like their level of brand yeah. discipline and self-discipline in their image and managing that is almost psychotic. It's so it's so crazily managed and maintained. I don't know how you do that without a a really high level of self-awareness and self-obsession or a team. You know, you hire well, yeah, hire and a, a really team. strong team to um it's this is really interesting cuz you know I study average people and I do right. normal people, normal stuff. And when you start talking about Jay-Z, you know, or the president, these are kind of these extreme figures that the personality might work differently. Like it could be that like, you know, you, that ego has worked or, you know, you have a team involved, so it's hard to read. But I think so much of it trickles down. These are the people that we've elevated. I know. So they're nobody without these average people who are elevating them to these positions. And they're also influencing our culture in a way that we're looking at them and saying, you know, I read this article in the Atlantic about these TikTok stars and the most chilling line in it was a 17 year old talking about how they had been protecting their brand since they were young because they never really got in trouble and they made sure that they were never, but they were thinking of themselves as brands in their teens. I mean, that to me is, it makes sense, but it's also, you aren't even thinking of yourself as a person. You're going to come out and you're not going to get a social security number. You're going to get like a, of you know an EIN like an <laughs> corporation <laughs> number <laughs> like That's everyone should just be born <laughs> I I am laughing so hard because uh, a long time ago I went to prep school back east and there where did you go Andover Phillips Academy okay and uh, lots of kids thought they might be president. And so mm-hmm. there was brand management and people would get high, but no one would take pictures because like, oh, my God, I'm going to run for president. And it's going to be like, uh, who is the Supreme Court case? We got to go through with the, my fellow Gen Xer there. Is it Kavanaugh? Ka- was he the recent one? It was just horrible. It's the party. Oh, story. Kavanaugh, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, this, that, that was, was horrible. So I, when I heard those stories, I'm like, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the 80s. That reminds me of every party I ever went to growing up with all the prep school kids. I'm like, you're literally talking about every kid that I knew growing up. Yeah. And uh, like in in my summer resort town where I was waitress. <laughs> yeah. So so I grew up with people that are like, we're going to hide. We're going to do this brand management stuff. But it wasn't so hard because no one had a camera anyway. Right. I mean, if I had social media when I was in college or in high school, oh my God, I would have been killed. I mean, I would have yes. had these, I mean. Me too. So, so now I assume people are doing it, but it's impossible because how do you protect yourself all the time? Everything is filmed. Everything's recorded. It would be horrible, horrible to be young right now. But that's what I mean. It's like, it, it, it's a natural evolution, I think, of self-awareness and self, and 
self-preservation yeah. is that is being aware of that hearing these kids i was like the first part of me was like that's so sad you're thinking of yourself although on the on the other hand i started a company in 2005 and i i was going to get a tattoo on miami inc my logo it all fell apart it's a long story because i was like i'm branding myself get it ha ha so i saw the you writing on the wall long ago 15 years ago i saw that this was pre kim kardashian yep and i so i think that obviously the culture was moving in this direction Mm -hmm. i grew up with the very early beginnings of reality television just with the real world Mm -hmm. i i remember the first season so it's not surprising to me that children who are in their teens would be talking about protecting their brands although i wonder what is getting lost. You know, there's a, there's some kind of like youthfulness that's getting lost yeah. that I, I just, I was like, God, these kids talk like they're adults. When I was 12 years old, I didn't even know what a brand was. You know, I don't even think I was aware of what that. No, I, um, I, I'm going to respond to you from the, from the research side, you know, historically, how we've seen the self has changed. And it started out, you know, a hundred years ago is really moral self. You know, what's your moral worth? What's your character? And then it became more like, what's your theory about yourself? And then it became more about your traits. How are you? Describe yourself. Then I noticed about 10, 15 years ago, it became a brand that people started to see themselves as a brand. And I had a student, I'm like, you got to study this, but it never happened. Um, and then I noticed they were, they were teaching these kids this and they were telling them to be thought leaders. They were telling yeah. these undergrads to be thought leaders. I'm like, thought leader? I mean, maybe one day I'll have enough good thoughts to be a thought leader, but geez, you know, yeah, you got to have a thought first. Yeah. And so usually, and so, and I, and I kind of, I'm not, I, I mean, I'm certainly willing to talk to anyone. I'm certainly narcissistic. I mean, I'm talking to you, I'll talk to anybody. But I don't, I never really focused on building a brand. I still haven't done it. I never knew how. And somebody came said, God, Keith, you've got the greatest brand. I'm like, what are you talking about? Dude, you just kind of study narcissism. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not my brand. That's what I do. I'm like, yeah. well, you got your brand by accident. Right. And, and I thought, well, maybe it'd be better to kind of get your brand more naturally than start off with the brand. And then, you know, and especially the way you describe it with Miami Inc. makes me think of a freaking cattle brand. Yeah. And I'm like, and it's like, my God, Keith, instead of starting your cattle farm, you're going to build a cattle brand, go brand yourself and go, look, yeah. I, I'm at the Rock and Jay Ranch. I'm Rock and Jay. Rock and Jay we, might be my new cannabis line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really wild because I, I and I was thinking a lot about this reading your book and bouncing back and forth between Thomas More's, which was written 25 years ago or f- more. And he said that in his clinical, you know, sitting down with his therapeutic patients, one of the things they kept hearing was that I just can't be selfish. And I wonder if you would even hear that now from people who are sitting because that was much more of a culture. A, it was grounded in a lot. There was a lot more religion around. So this idea of selflessness and not thinking. Of, I mean, I was. I still come from that generation where it's not comfortable for me to self-promote partially because my factory settings and this stuff that was 
you know, squirted into my brain was you don't talk too much about yourself. You don't, you don't brag. All of that stuff is look, you know, kind of frowned upon. And I don't, that I didn't grow up in the generation of like self love, which is (laughs) a weird concept, but not surprising if we're coming out of, it seems like the natural antidote and symptom of narcissism weirdly. It feels like narcissism is this inability to love yourself, but I don't know that the solution is more self-love because like you said in your book, you have this generation of people who are told they can be anything. They're told that they're all special snowflakes, (laughs) which is hilarious how that word's been co-opted. And (laughs) then you take them into the kind of weird economy where I was looking at all the data yesterday that they're keeping in New York and some of the higher paid workers are doing fine. It's the lower wage workers that are suffering badly in these lockdowns. And I mean, my brain is just going in so many directions because even with what we're seeing in America, talking about America being narcissistic, our our way of handling this pandemic is so deeply American. Like our reaction to it (laughs) is so, it's so narcissistic. (laughs) Other countries are like, okay, we'll do what you say, you know, for the better. And everyone in America is like, fuck off. I'll do what I want. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, just winding back your kind of question comment there. The, that Northeast idea of not talking about yourself was really, really powerful. And I was, like I said, I was in prep school back there. You know, the Bushes would talk about this. I had Barbara Bush, don't talk about the great I am. You know, who are you mm-hmm. to talk about yourself? And I was raised that way. I was you just don't talk about yourself that much. It's just don't be an arrogant SOB. It's a problem. I mean, I was on the Rogan show and never mentioned the name of my book because I didn't even think about it. I'm like, you know, just want to have a good conversation, make a good show. I don't, you know, and stuff will work out. So you've got to train yourself to self-promote. It's hard if you were grown, if you were raised like that. And the idea of self-love was something absurd when we were growing up. Absurd. absurd. We were taught to, to, I mean, it was more about uh, self-discipline and work. And that was kind of the messages I got more work hard, overcome stuff. You know, I just got life isn't fair. You know, like I, this is like a message that if you said to kids now, they'd be like, "Um, it's called equity, and you're being racist by saying that." You yeah, be like, "This it's is like, the world's tiniest violin I, playing for you." You know, they used to say that to me. <laughs> it's the world's tiniest yeah. violin playing for you. Yeah, yeah. No self pity <laughs> was really frowned upon. Um, the idea of being kind of a victim, if you were like, ma, I'm the oldest of five. It's like, they did this or that. It's like, yeah, life isn't fair. Move on. That was just where I came from. So seeing the erosion of these kind of yeah. very basic concepts that I felt were, I thought were pretty basic is, has been, an I feel a huge gap between me and the generation below me. And it's purely ideological what they were raised with. And much of it is this you know, participation trophy generation. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, well, we saw that start in California with the self-esteem it was a movement for self-esteem and social responsibility in the early eighties is when they started, you know, pumping self-esteem into the schools and that, I mean, we've written a lot about this and then they started doing that through the nineties, 2000 and it became, well, so, okay. 
here's what they wanted to do. They thought, well, if we give kids self-esteem, they want to kids out of wedlock, they won't use drugs, whatever. It doesn't work like that. People with self-esteem right. do drugs just fine. Sometimes they just do them right. if they want them. So it didn't work, but that was the idea. And so they said, well, let's give kids self-esteem. Well, I want my kids self-esteem. Self-esteem feels good. I didn't grow up with a lot of it. I wish my kids had a little more. The way you get self-esteem is you meet and succeed at, at sort of reasonable challenges. So you say, hey, go face that challenge. And then they, you meet that challenge. You go, I feel good about myself, self-efficacy, mm-hmm. um, and having relationships, mm-hmm. having close friendships or loving relationships helps raise self-esteem. So what the schools decided to do is say, instead of doing it that way, what we're going to do is tell kids they're really smart and they're special. So they focused on telling kids how they're unique, how they stand out from other kids. So my kids were like, tell me special things about you that make you stand out from everyone else. And they they got rid of grades because they, I mean, they started making grades easier and easier because then people get more self-esteem. And it worked. Kids have higher self-esteem now than they did. I mean, at least they did when we studied, and it could have dropped in the last few years. But since we've studied it, kids' self-esteem went high. It didn't seem to solve a lot of problems, though. But isn't this, isn't, haven't there been studies that, you know, particularly in America, that they think the highest of themselves, but actually perform the lowest? Like on a global you know, when you when yes. you take yeah, test yeah. the kids, they they perform really poorly in reading and math and all of these skills, but they on average think much more highly of themselves than kids who are being tested who are actually much you know more proficient in these areas. Yeah, and, and definitely America's we we so the way I describe it is you know that that old. Uh, the old uh, movie with meatloaf in it. What was it with the rock and roll guys and the thing that goes to 11? Oh, um, uh, gosh, we use this all the time. Yeah. Um, I know, but that, but essentially what we did with these kids is we turned them to 11. (laughs) So we took all these young people and we're like, you're going to 11. You're awesome. You can be anything you want to be, but we kind of screwed the world up. So it's not like there's more opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we made a world of opportunity for them. We, we kind of made the world harder in a lot of ways. A lot of ways it's easier, but a lot of ways it's harder. We gave them a lot of debt to go to school. And, uh, and we said you could be anything you want. And, and they can't. And so you end up with a lot of that big gap between what people think of themselves and where they are. But it makes sense that then, so this makes even more sense to me now that you would fill that gap with becoming a TikTok star, a YouTube star, or somebody who goes and plays video games or somebody who thrives on Instagram. I mean, actually, what else are they supposed to do? What option have we really given them? Right. That's why. So we came up with this idea of geek culture and the great fantasy migration back in the day because I thought, well, you got all these kids who think they're legends. They're really not. And frankly, there's not enough room in the world for everyone to be a legend. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just not that much room for us. But maybe we can create these other worlds where they can be legends. So we'll create these World of Warcraft games or Dungeons and Dragons, or they can dress as cosplay and go to a Dragon Con or Comic Con and they can get esteem that way. So I thought, well, maybe we'll make all these new worlds where kids can go get esteem in those worlds. Right. And that'll be kind of the bridge. So we'll take all these kids. Yeah, the world's, you can't get esteem there, but we'll migrate over to this fantasy world and you can be really successful in this sort of fantasy world. 
And the way it works is some people are so good at fantasy, they become famous in reality. So some of these TikTok stars are going to be so famous, they actually get a real world mansion. And some of them will, you know, be so celebrated, like, you know, and this is what Freud said about art. So this isn't a new idea. Um, but the idea is that sometimes people will move into fantasy, but the fantasy will shift back into reality for some of them. Right. And so that's what I thought would happen. And then everybody gets along. We all feel good about ourselves. But instead, everyone just started fighting with each other. And that's where we ended up. Why do you think people started fighting with each other? Because when I was talking to these Facebook folks, you know, a decade ago, and they started linking everyone up, and they said, we're going to link everyone up. And they had pictures of the Dalai Lama and Martin Luther King. And they took people, we had people were about seven degrees of separation, and they took them to a little over three degrees of separation on Facebook. As a social psychologist, I think, well, you bring people together, and they just start to separate into groups and fight. Yeah, that's just how I look at the world. I mean, just it's right. so easy. It's so easy. This with my social psychology hat on to take a group of people, say you're a group, here's your outfit, and you're better than that group. And I take the other group and go, here's your outfit, you're better than that group, fight. I can do that in 10 minutes, I can get people to go to war. So this fantasy that everyone's going to be all close and loving, it just, it never seems to work in the real world. I mean, contact isn't bad, you know, I mean, it, it helps a little, but but it, it can lead to conflict. And I just mm -hmm. thought, yeah, this is going to get ugly. And it, and it looks like what happened on social media is people just started splitting into these tribes and they kind of polarize and, and they're so close to each other. They can attack each other. It, 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 yeah, it didn't work out the way they fantasize. It never does. People like to fight. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is one of tech's biggest blind spots is that they, my friend and I were just talking about this. They there was this idea that they'd create this utopia where everybody would get along. Yeah. And now that that didn't happen, and there's all this hatred and groups, and the normal thing that you would expect to happen if you're a social psychologist happens, and now they're trying to manage it by by their own hand which is even more chilling and dangerous. So it didn't go the way they wanted. And now they're trying to influence and manage it. And, and that, you know, I'm, I just think we live in some of the most fascinating times because obviously we can't have any idea how our brains are changing from interacting right. with this technology regularly. And in particular, like we, spent five minutes on TikTok last night and I was like, wow, I can see why the kids are anxious. It's, I mean, what is the next evolution of TikTok? Is it just like somebody zapping you for one second? You know, what? how do you get that hit? Because it does feel very, very much like the same hit you would get uh, either doing drugs or even like gambling, that kind of like spinning yes, and, and cycling. Dopamine. Yeah. Just, That's what and, people, you know, they talk about it. And it's, you know, I don't think it's the same as a line of Coke, but it's it's definitely working those reward systems. And it's that really fast feedback. And and we don't understand what happens. Like when, when I first saw Facebook, I thought, holy crap, this is bigger than Woodstock. And I went to my student, Laura, and I'm like, figure this out. That's the scale I was thinking, because when I was in school, Woodstock was a big social movement. It just a like occurred to me. Rock concert. Yeah, yeah. It was. But something just occurred to me. 
and maybe you can study this. We are addicted to ourselves. That's what they've gotten us addicted to. It's so dangerous. It's, it, it is what the influence of narcissism meeting technology and these social medias has essentially made us, it's taken our self-obsession and now we're addicted to ourselves. Like how, talk about a matrix. And in many ways, it's how we're surviving. For instance, I'm, I mean, I could trace every dollar that I make through Twitter now, that's not because I, I'm creating content. So I, I'm at least creating something and writing. But there is an aspect of me. When I started Dumpster Fire, my podcast, my um, show on YouTube, I was like, I basically took my meth addiction to Twitter and started cooking it in my garage, literally, because now I've figured out how to take what I love on Twitter, which is all the snarky culture war and turn it into a show where I get to make fun of it all, which is still funny. And I think there's probably some kind of function, but there is a part of me that sees how you start monetizing that. And boy, is that a trap? You know, it's oh, like, it, how it do is. I get out of this trap, Keith? <laughs> I, <laughs> how I do mean, I get out? I think one of the issues with narcissism and ego and status and being cool and being popular is that it's a nonstop job. I always, it's like the shark that can't stop swimming. You got to keep going and you can't stop because as soon as you stop, you're just not relevant anymore, right? Yes. I mean, then you're, you're gone. So I, I try to hold on to sort of deeper currents. I kind of look at my life. I'm like, well, the chain of being, I'm in this tradition. It goes back to William James. I'm going to do my stuff. The next generation will do it. I try to ground myself in something a lot deeper than that. And, uh, and I'm not saying I succeed at all. This <laughs> is sort of how I try no, to, you know, I, that's I, I get it. yoga yeah, yeah. and trying to, and try to, I try to find the deeper rhythm in the song. You know, this is the rhythm I'm trying to, or the, this is the chord progression I'm trying to go with the thousand year old chord, chord progression, not the 10 minute chord progression, not the stuff we're talking about right now. So I try to go deep. Um, not that I figured it out. But the other thing I've realized is if, if I got attached to fame, I would kill myself. I mean, because yeah. you've been on Joe Rogan's show. You were probably the most famous person in the world for about three hours after being in yeah, that show. It's definitely, uh, I was unprepared for the Joe Rogan effect, as they call it. And it's definitely something that I'm like, wow, imagine being Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> like, that just to be, hey, it would be amazing because I think he's another person who uses his platform for good to be yeah. able to like take your spotlight and highlight people like you who are studying these cool things and who wouldn't ordinarily have their work being exposed to literally millions upon millions of people. But it is also, you know, I find one of the jokes we constantly have on Dumpster Fire is we must feed the algorithm. The algorithm <laughs> must be fed. And yeah. this is, we made a, a mug out of it now. And because it it is really, this is why YouTube stars have breakdowns. You know, right. I watch these YouTube right. stars because they're constantly having to like feed the algorithm. And if you don't keep feeding the algorithm, it's you don't make as much money. Like you said, you lose relevance and it becomes this crazy trap. You can't. I had a really interesting YouTube star on to talk and she was talking about how she made her fame and money. She has millions of followers and she's a makeup tutorial person, but she's bored. 
She's been doing it for seven years. Right. She's like, I don't want to talk about makeup anymore. But if she even tries to pivot out of that brand, she gets she loses followers. She loses deals with brands who have deals with her who are like, well, you're not supposed to be talking about culture and politics. You're supposed to be putting your makeup on and telling people how nice it is. And so you create it's so weird because to circle back to what you were talking about, Kylie Jenner, it one of the things there was a great book that came out years ago that I wrote was reading. And back when I started my company, like I said, I think I saw a lot of this happening. For me, it was liberating the destruction of the middleman, not being able to just we live in the and there's this book was called the rise of the creative class. <laughs> and it was essentially like in a time when you can make a podcast in your in your room and go put it on a platform and you can go find sponsors if you can manage to break through and get so years ago I just stopped focusing I took some time and I, I've talked about this a lot I saw Twitter I started treating tw Twitter I was addicted to it uh, I loved it I got addicted to it but then I saw a real I was like you know what I don't need anyone if I have an audience that was like the the thing that came to me and so I just said one joke one piece of writing, one YouTube video at a time, I would like to just try and grow my own audience so I can cut out the middleman. Yeah. I don't need to go. I had been running around Hollywood auditioning, running around Hollywood trying to get a manager for years, running around trying to get my content made. And I was like, this is stupid. Why, like, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. So there's so much freedom in what has happened for many of us. And I see that as a good thing. But then comes the trap of feeding the algorithm and you become and when you become a brand, you know, how do you I was saying just in my little community the other day, I've been having this kind of dealing with this. And I was saying I just look around and I see most of the people as like these sociopathic narcissists. And then I ask myself if these are the people I'm surrounded by in my space by default, doesn't that make me this? And how do I mitigate the, the effects of, of what I've chosen to do? And really always for me, like you said, it's coming back to the community I've built. What have I built? Well, I've built, I've created a lot of things, but I've also built this community that has saved me during quarantine. What are the deeper things? Like there's no soul in narcissism. That's the thing. If I, I have to come back to the soul always. Yeah. And that's why I love that book, Care of the Soul, because that's he actually says that in the book. I was reading it today. He said there's like the in the early stages of narcissism in particular, because he talks about all these things as like, what are the gifts of narcissism? What are the gifts of depression? Yeah. And so it's pointing to the place where you can look for that deeper connection to something like you um, yoga is another place I go when I start getting very, because essentially feeding the algorithm, when you become so focused on that and it's very easy, you are looking at the results. I'm in, I am now out of what am I doing? What is my small con contribution? How can I be of service to how many followers do I have? Right. Who has more followers than me? How much money have I? Why aren't I making as much as this other person? There's entitlement yeah. oh, there. For sure. Yep. It's and I feel very lucky in that I am an alcoholic and in recovery because the twelve steps do a lot to keep all of those instincts in check. 
But without them, and when I was drinking, I mean, yeah, just narcissism on fire. <laughs> there's, I love this. There's so much here. I, um, I, I should say I, I sobered up when I was 20 after okay. going off a roof at Berkeley. And, uh, you know, I kind of every look at these scars I have still 35 years later. And I, I go, thank God that happened to me. Because yeah. I'm pretty chill about stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm glad I made it to the show. And yeah. that's it. So that to me, and I think that's something with recovery for people. A lot of people go through suffering. They're just like, yeah, I'm just grateful. This is pretty yeah. awesome to be here. I'm, I love my friends. I'm having fun. Um, and so that's, for me, that's, that's really been liberating. It's a hard lesson, but it was a very liberating lesson. In terms of feeding the, the algorithm, I think you should call the algorithm Moloch because it would really <laughs> make sense because that's what it sounds like. And the problem I find, if if you're doing things for money, then you're like, well, I'm doing it for the money. Shouldn't I just do something else? Like maybe start investing in cryptos or start yeah. a, uh, maybe I should start a coffee shop that only uses cryptos and, uh, and then spin that off into an apartment complex. So I, you know, because then, because you're not thinking about your craft, right. you're not thinking about creativity, you're not thinking about soul work, you're thinking about just cash. And that happens all the time when you do stuff. Yeah. You, know, you get, you know, it's, we used to talk about with like athletes, you know, you start off playing football for fun. And once it becomes a sport, you're not doing it for fun. You play golf for fun. Yeah. Yeah. So that happens with a lot of these. I mean, this goes back to the old idea of intrinsic motivation. I mean, things we really love doing once we start getting rewarded for it, either from people telling us to do it or do it this way or paint the picture of the dogs playing poker again, Keith, we really like that painting or tell that funny joke, you know, don't, you're trapped. Oh yeah. You, 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 you hear it even with musicians who get sick of playing their hits and just refuse to play them. And then their audience turns on them. I mean, this is not, it's, it's not a new phenomenon by any means. And my friend Carter Goodrich is a brilliant artist. He, he does character design and he's done New Yorker covers and he's 20 years older than me and was always my kind of inspiration as an artist when I moved out to LA when I was 20 and I would just, he was so self-disciplined and I was trying to be a writer and he said, someday you're going to turn your muse into a mule. So enjoy these days. And I did not understand what he meant. And I was like, Oh, now that I have deadlines and I'm grateful for all of this, but yeah. I know what he meant when he was like, you're just doing it for fun right now. It's pure. Yeah. Someday you're going to be on a deadline and you're not going to want to write that piece or you're going to hate that piece or you're going to turn something in that isn't your best work because, and you know it yeah. and you're going to be beating that muse into submission basically. And it was so, it just like still to this day just rings in my head because I think that that's that is kind of the the trap of the artist mm -hmm. and now that we live in this rise of the creative class where everybody really is you know these younger kids I don't blame them if you can play video games and get paid to do it why wouldn't you do that <laughs> uh, I think the problem is because you only get the 0.02% that are actually paid for it you know it's like saying right, once you play right. football it's such you're going to small... you know you're going to get a you're going to get your uh you know college scholarship yeah, maybe. Right. Right. So you have to, but how would you know that you can't be that 0.02% in, you know, until it's maybe too late and you've become a video game addict, you have to develop other skills. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if there isn't, 
I think the good thing about your brand and your what you study is that there does seem to be a backlash to it. You know, it's like this thing that was never really mentioned to something that was a personality disorder to now this thing that's applied to everything and almost overused. But now you read all these articles, you know, when I was at Playboy, it was a lot of people writing me like, I'm dating a narcissist. And this was your first book that you wrote, correct? About Oh, yeah. What was called like, When You Love a Man Who Loves Himself. Yeah. Yeah. This was a very... I heard this all the time from women and men, and now I hear it actually more from men than than women, just because of um, I think the the very visual culture that we live in that's re- very rewarding to particularly good looking women. And like you said, you've seen these this even on YouTube we're seeing this. The trend is that these people who are on the road, the van life, is insanely popular right now. People are wanting the less Kardashian-esque. Yeah. They want more gritty. They want things that look more DIY. They don't want the polished, you know, hyper, yeah. hyper glossy finished versions of people. So there does seem to turn be a turn back to authenticity, but then I have to refer back to mediated, which is so... I notice this with my nephews because they think selfies are like for old people. You know, they're like, you are See, this ridiculous. Is really interesting. They, that whole generation thinks selfies is ridiculous. But narcissism is sneaky. Narcissism <laughs> yes. because it's ego. Yes, it's ego. So it's like we can make spirituality egotistical. I've seen it in yoga. People competitively doing yoga. Even on Peloton, I was laughing because there's meditations. And it's like difficulty 3.1 i'm like who's rating these meditations you know like it's so antithetical to like meditating like this is about a 3.1 and in difficulty yeah. like it was even it's just so our culture but so then they started taking these pictures the big you know profile picture for my nephew who's now pretty old he's like 20 so even his younger siblings look at him and think that he's he's an old because the generations have been flattened yeah. And it was like these very set up pictures of them not looking at the camera. So it was, it was, um, cameos, but they were, they were basically, uh, what's it called? Like they were set up. Like 70s shot, like bands, like they were kind of like looking away, like, like, yeah, like off in the distance, like they weren't paying attention, but these were very highly kind of like, it, it wasn't an actual cameo. So then you get into the idea of what is real, real. So now it's manufactured authenticity, <laughs> which is terrifying. Yes. Um, terrifying. But they have to, right? Because they got to manufacture it. Because authenticity, you, if you need something that's reproducible, it's hard to reproduce authenticity. It, because you capture it in a moment, but you're like, God, we, that was the greatest day ever. We went to the beach and you, you wrapped yourself in seaweed and you attacked me. And then we did this. And it was so, remember that cat ran down and was chasing the seagull. That was hilarious. You can't do that again. You could never do that. You know, it just, you caught it. It was amazing. Yeah. And so then the culture is like, so I guess what they do is they find the authentic person. Ah, this, you know, uh, Bridges, she seems real authentic. Let's everyone be like her. And Bridges, don't ever change because we like your authenticity now. Don't try to like dress up anymore, even though you're rich now, because that's not authentic. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. The other thing, this is more kind of a, a little more foundational idea of, of how the self works. And, you know, the self, you know, this idea of our ego or our self is there's a lot of parts of it. 
a big part of it is we have this image of who we are, this kind of a, this description of me. It's it, it has to do with my relationships and what I do and my personality traits and, and I have esteem, you know, how much I like myself. And when people get those identities really stuck, they really they kind of cling to their identity. Their identity is central to who they are. It gets very hard to change. And I've yeah. been stuck in identities a lot in my life, and they've and I've and they've been great when they've worked, and then when they stop working, I've suffered because of them. And and one of the lessons you see in humanistic psychology, you see it in Zen Buddhism, you see it in a lot of areas, is like start thinking of yourself not as a thing, but as a process. You're kind of learning all the yeah. time. You're moving. You're a system. You're always growing like a forest. You know, there's always new things coming in and going out. And I, if I can stay in that mental place where it's a pra- where my life is a practice, where my life is movement, it, it works better. I don't get as stuck. I don't get as attached. It's not like I've got this master, but that. that's the way. So I'm always like, I'm always wrong 20% of the time. Like if I teach, I'm like, I'm going to be right 80%. Correct me the other 20%. And I try to go into it like I'm broken and I'm always being fixed. Yeah. We're always growing. I guess not being fixed is the right word, but always yeah. growing. That mental space has been really helpful to me, coupled with trying to appreciate abundance, you know, rather than defensiveness. Yeah. So being less defensive and more growth focused. I mean, it's very humanistic, and and but that approach has been better because if you start getting stuck on who you are and how you fit in, you're just screwed. I mean, it's like getting stuck to yeah. fame. I, I think, yeah, one of the greatest gifts I think of and realizations I've had in sobriety and seven years of it. And and they said this when I first got sober, they said, you are not who you think you are. And in many ways, I've reverted back to kind of my essence, like the person that I was as a child before I started, like around 10 years old, when I feel like I was really just the most kick-ass version of myself before I got lost and wanted to be popular and moved a lot and parents got divorced and started doing drinking, drinking and drugs and lost my way. I mean, I've spent a lot, many, many decades of my life lost and in sobriety, I feel in many ways I've reverted back to that, like very curious, loved reading was actually pretty quiet, really can be an extrovert, but really was quite shy before I was kind of forced to move all the time. And in other ways, I had told an entire story about myself that I have spent seven years letting go of, that I was going to be single forever, that I was a party girl, that I was all of these things that I told myself that I was. And it was really keeping me stuck in so many ways. It's just really been a very humbling process of letting go and surrendering to the idea that I actually have no clue who I am in many ways. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it's it might be better for me to just, I, I've been joking and saying, I feel like I've just been playing a giant game of improv of like, yes, and, you know, <laughs> yes, and now I'll do this. And I love and back to the self-esteem, how that was something that really stuck out in 12 step. They always say, if you want self-esteem, do esteemable acts. And I like that. That's yeah. It's just been something that I've really, it's like one of those dumb little platitudes that I have clung to because it is something that I let go of. And I 
you know, I've been trying to write this memoir just about becoming an accidental pundit because aren't we all pundits now kind of too? This is the other weird thing that's happened. Everybody has a platform. I mean, everybody is kind of an accidental pundit. The real pundits all suck. Yeah. 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 And just becoming this and, and how I was raised in this kind of nihilistic Gen X. Because who's responsible for the millennials? Is that the baby boomers? Um, or is that Gen X? It, well, the, I would say the boomers. So, I mean, you and I are, you know, there's that kind of classic Gen X. And I was born in 66, which is sort of the beginning. You know, they always, sometimes they say 65 is the cutoff. But there are a couple punk rock years before me. Like the punkers that were yeah. a couple years older were sort You're of. You're like in that transition year. Right. So I was at the beginning, yeah. and you're probably more like the tail end of the generation, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm considered exennial, I yeah. guess is another term for it, where it's like I'm I'm Gen... I mean, I much more highly identify with Gen X, but I also got my first email when I was 18. So I was, I was essentially leaving high school as, as the computer age... You know, my siblings all grew up with computers, the younger ones, and I didn't have a com- We had a computer in high school, but it was primarily just to type. I, rem- I remember dial up, you know, there, yeah. I just, I was on the, so yeah, I was on the tip, but I, I remember, you know, Kurt Cobain when I was 12 was when I was really listening to him. And so I was like, how did we end up, but I'm wondering if that's why generation, the Gen Z, I love Gen Z. I actually think they're pretty chill. I do too. And I think most of them are coming from Gen X. Like I think Gen X is responsible for Gen Z. And they there is a se- seemingly similarity. And there's a weird similarity between millennials and boomers because we were raised very much, you know, I'm like, is that why we're like the well, whatever, never mind generation, you know, <laughs> like I, there's a lot of things that I think, um, one is I, you know, my parents were what they call silent generation that, that were kind of pre boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uncle was kind of the first boomer. I call him, you know, he partied with Jim Morrison up, the, you know, <laughs> down in LA and he was, he was at Southern oh, Cal wow. and told me about, you know, when the scene, the jazz scene and stuff. And so I, he was right at the beginning and my parents weren't, but uh, they were kind of classic silent generation. But the other thing with our upbringing in Gen X is one, we didn't have boomers with their idealism. We had our pragmatic parents. And the other thing is, and and this sounds like maybe you and I had some similarities in this, is it was fucking crazy growing up. And we didn't have phones. Yeah. And I'd tell my parents, I'm like, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm just driving down to Baja with some friends. I mean, we'd load the truck up yeah. with surfboards <laughs> and fly rods and we'd take off for three weeks. And like get arrested yeah. and get caught and almost die. And <laughs> just all, I mean, I had, I mean, just all the time, just, it was constant. And I found myself at age 30 or so. I'm like, I just traumatized like crazy. I mean, I sobered up at 20, but it was like, and you know, it, it was a very crazy time. I think a lot more crime, yeah. a lot yeah. more, it was just insanity. I think people too forget like how much domestic terrorism there was in the nineties and in the late eighties was a lot of crime in the nineties. It was like one thing after another. I feel like there was tons of domestic terrorism and yeah, I think people for, we do have this, we are very much. And again, this seems like very much narcissism to be 
kind of stuck in the idea that like nothing's ever been as hard, nothing's ever been as bad and forgetting that, you know, our parents lived through the sixties, which was yes. chaos. I mean, talk yeah. about chaos. Well, I, I kind of, I, I found myself going, yeah, we're just living 68. And I started listening to old Dylan music and I'm like laughing because it's totally on point. He should have just released it today, you know? And so a lot of the stuff we're cycling through, I'm like the space race and the civil rights movement. And I'm like, we've got the psychedelic revolution coming on cue and, you know, the re the reconnection with India. All these things are happening again, like the sixties. It's just weird. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it ends up, but it is strange. And chops you know the stuff they were doing in portland and i i mean i was at berkeley i remember going to people's park that was that was chops or chaz <laughs> yeah. you know people's park was chaz in 67 or something you know but when i was there it's just a bunch of people selling acid and kind of with the brain brains blown out yeah i think that it's the difference the biggest difference is that so much of this feels performative to me now I feel like in the civil rights era and during that time, it feel talk about authentic. They were out there doing this now. I mean, I'll never forget. I went to a Black Lives Matter march uh, probably in 2013 or 14 in L.A. And watching the girls with their signs, getting their pictures taken and kind of coming to the front. And I was like, this is not about what you're saying it's about. This is about you looking like you're at this thing and i don't feel i could be wrong but i don't feel like that was the case back then i think that there's you know i wonder what the instance of of narcissism is in people who are like social justice warriors and maga like i would love to see that study yeah we did that study and it never oh. got published <laughs> it's but uh I'll, I'll tell you what you see um overall at least when we've looked at it are the people that are kind of the ringleaders in these political movements that are the the, the, the leaders are often the narcissistic ones and right. the people following are often doing it from really good intentions so I imagine right. if I went to a Black Lives Matter or MAGA rally, there'd be a bunch of people that are in there doing this. I mean, I saw them in L.A. doing the selfies. You know, they pull over, do the selfie. <laughs> L.A. has got to stay on brand. Yeah, it does. I think there's people that are doing that in sort of leadership roles or in very, you know, sort of uh, crowd facing roles or public facing roles. But I think a lot of people and I would say the majority are well intentioned. Uh, and either side, right. I don't, I think most people get up in the day and they're trying to do what's best and figure it out. And some people yeah. are just, you know, they want attention and they find a way to do it. And you want to get attention. There's a lot of options out there and, you know, you can find one. But don't you think even the good intentioned people are seduced by the performative aspect of our society? Isn't it, you know, there's so much performance now uh, because the of the of social media really unless you're if you're on social media you're kind of always performing even if you're not you ever watch those videos from the from congress you know where you see the congressman do this impassioned speech and then they pan out there's nobody there you know and it's just all an act that's what cameras do you know and that's why people like we don't want cameras in the courtroom look what cameras do they make everyone perform and so right. I think uh, I think if you looked at if you looked at uh, social movements now compared to the 60s, the, the level of performance would be much higher now. 
And I don't know if anybody right. done that study, but I bet you could. I bet you could look at the crowd, look at how people are doing, how they're performing. Um, because people are, you know, people will, will what do they call it? Uh, camp for the camera. What's the term you use? They'll sort of perform for the camera. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been a million studies about how just the very process of observing something changes. Absolutely. It. And the other thing you get with these social movements is you get anonymity. Everyone's wearing masks. Everybody's covered. So these are classic social psych phenomenon. And then when people get in those situations, they get de-individuated, they call it. So you're not really thinking about your individual self. You get connected to the body of what's going on or the movement. And then you're easily Mobs. swayed by whatever the people in power want. So, right. you know, if it's a football game and you just won and they're like, let's go turn cars over and set them on fire. You're like, I'm going to do it because somebody started doing it. Right. When you see these these protests, what can happen is somebody can say, I'm going to go break some windows. And then you're like, I'll go break windows, too. So when you're in those groups, right. and individuated, you're really at risk of being manipulated by whoever's going to take leadership of that crowd. And that person might be. Right really a well-intentioned, loving person who's the best leader ever. You might be following Martin Luther King. It could be awesome. Or that person could be a self-serving narcissist who's doing it for their own ends. Or there could be some agent provocateur there who's like, we're going to start a civil war and you're going to be the first person, Keith. You're like, but I, I was just protesting. I just want everyone to love each other. Right, you know? right, right. It's so, it's crazy. I mean, I feel like there's so much we could talk about too even just around the vacuum that's been created and and how conspiracy theories and these kind of bad it's like a really f bad agents are flourishing in this kind of yes you know i see just the people who have risen to the top and in in many ways we've elevated mental illness as something that's in this process of self-love it's also just elevated things that are to the heights of our culture as something to be like, you know, almost brag about. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how we find our way out of this. You know, that's my primary reason that I focus a lot on all of this is because I see around me the damage it's causing and people just hanging on to conspiracy theories People, depression, anxiety, addiction, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of lack of meaning in their life, the emptiness of all of this kind of performative narcissistic culture that we've created is creating an entire generation of people who are being kind of, uh, as my friend Michael Malice would say, blackpilled, where they just feel hopeless. Yeah. And so my primary reason that I pay attention and focus and overly think and read about all of this is because, I mean, how do I lead myself out? But how do I help other people who might be feeling this way? Because that's a terrifying feeling. I, um, this is a, this time is so hard because there's no ground, there's no ground of truth that anyone can right. point to. And I hear people talking about science science, I just start laughing. I mean, because they weren't right. there for the replication crisis in my field four years ago when we realized it was all bullshit. So, right. I mean, I, science isn't going to be the solution. I, well, and it's I love, not a God either. Yeah. And and God, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I 
Well, and it's not, yeah, it's, there's no faith in God. I mean, I don't know which, lost... which one they're going to find. I mean, which God are they going to pick I, to all rally behind? You know, it's, I don't, I don't see any of that. And when, and there's two different narratives. So everybody's kind of being perpetually gaslit because you're like, here's my reality. Yeah. And then you talk to somebody who's not in the reality, not in the other side. And they're like, what? You say the lights are up. I just turned them down. They start messing with the gas lights right. and messing with your head. And so I don't know. I don't know how this resolves either. I am focused on just really staying balanced. So I try to stick with the yoga and the basic stuff and the diet and the dog and, you know, and, and exercise, you know, I kind of work from the physical up and, uh, and try to stay, I mean, I really work at this and I'm, and, and I said, when I found myself getting destabilized, that scares me because I'm smart yeah. and I study this and I have lots of friends and contacts and it's hard. The things that make me optimistic, because I have to be optimistic, are that there's uh, lots of model or lots of models, several models that have predicted chaos around this time. In the generation work, they talked about the fourth turning forever. You know, so when I started studying generations back in the 90s, I was like, I'm waiting for the fourth turning. It's going to be great. It's going to be turbulent mm. times. Yeah, yes, turbulent times suck. Mm. Turbulent sucks. <laughs> it's that Chinese curse. May you live in interesting yes. times. Yes. And and <laughs> then uh and then this academic Peter Turchin up at Princeton, I think, who studies history using these these more quantitative methods, has talked about this period a lot. And he's talks about overproduction mm. of elites. And the problem is you have all these people that think they're elite. And they're not that elite and there's no place for them. And so mm-hmm. they have elite wars. So we're kind of in the middle of some elite wars now. But you. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Really. Um, I would love to read about that. Yeah. The elite wars is one of those things that seems pretty, pretty clear to me. Knowing the elites I know. What's his name? Turchin is his last name. T-U-R-C-H-I-N. He does okay. sort of quantitative historical analysis, which is a little fringe. I find it fascinating. But but these. Yeah. yeah. So, so all these, these things have converged right now. And when systems get destabilized like this, they usually stabilize. So, the, you know, the old saying is instability breeds stability and stability brings, breeds mm-hmm. instability. It's like how markets work. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, I mean, we're, we're going through so much change so fast. We're going through, you know, like they say, like a, a decade and a year, you know, hopefully we'll come mm-hmm. out of here and stabilize, but I don't see it. I, I just don't see how the meeting of the minds happens, which is why I've started studying psychedelics. I'm like, well, maybe that's going to be the solution is the psychedelic re- renaissance, but that's not really going to be the solution. That's just the one I'm hoping for because I don't see a really clear political solution. I'm just worried it becomes, you know, like a a massive government surveillance state. Uh, that's yeah. Because that seems to be where it ends up is yeah. that people people in this fear you know, I was, I've been saying this a lot on Dumpster Fire. I'm just shocked at how easily people just skip right into the arms of authoritarianism when they're feeling scared. And I, I can understand it on some levels, but even you're seeing in like Norway and, and a lot of places in Europe with the, this idea of hate speech being punished in private, you know, this is, these are things that are, should be deeply chilling to most anyone who has a sense of, even what happened in in Russia under communism, this is something that I find terrifying and also I think very seductive if you're looking for stability 
some, you know, people who keep pointing, they're like, well, look how these countries are doing it. I'm like, you're talking about countries that literally weld people into their houses to, to get them to comply. <laughs> like, that's not exactly the model that we should be looking to for, for like dealing with a pandemic, for example. So there, there's a lot of stuff that I'm optimistic, but I'm also looking at looking at how the generation doesn't even believe in privacy. It's a concept that Gen Z does yeah. not understand, respect, or even think is necessary. This, it, you know, we are on the slippery slope. It's not uh, appearing in front of us. I, um, just to go down this black pill path with you, which I, I probably shouldn't do, but I, <laughs> this is fun. I, when I was young, I went to a lot of communist countries, not a lot, but I mean, I went to China in the eighties. I was one of the first people in, I traveled to Mongolia, right? When it opened in the nineties, I've been, you know, I trained wow. with a bunch of military guys in Yugoslavia in the eighties. I, uh, Oh, to be a man traveling. Yeah, How I envy oh, it. Different times. That was when before I was sober too. That was eight, Different I was 18, times, but man. also just women oh, can't travel like that. No, it's too, it's just. This. No, I used to hear guys and when I was in Sri Lanka, they'd be like, and then I just got a drink with these guys and I got on the back of a moped no, and went into the jungle. No, I'm like, no, I'd no. never be seen no, again. No, I shouldn't have been seen again. <laughs> I shouldn't be here. I would not want my daughters yeah. doing this. No, you're hundred percent. So I don't even know what I was saying. I just got so dark thinking about my. Oh, you were talking <laughs> about um, being in communist countries. Yeah, so I, I've been to all these communist countries. And, and what really got me was I went to Mongolia after the Russians left. And they said the Russians stopped teaching about Genghis Khan, you know, Genghis Khan, however they yeah. said over there, Genghis Khan. And I, I thought it blew my mind. But when they got rid of the Russians, I was there for the Dalai Lama's first visit or the day before he came and they dusted off all the Buddhism that the Russians had held. And they had this big picture wow. of Genghis Khan on the mountains and he was the new grandfather. They kind of rebuilt him as a grandfather figure, kind of like Santa Claus. And I thought, my God, they stole Genghis Khan from the Mongols. The Russians could do that. Yeah. And I was in China when everyone wore Mao suits and they all wear these fake Ray-Ban. You know, they had these retro-engineered Ray-Bans. I bought some. It was great. And I'm like, but, and I talked to people, a uh, few of them that weren't scared. I'm like, this is the most, I, okay, so here's a story. I was in China and I played the B-52s on a bus, Rock Lobster by the B-52s. And oh, Athens band, give a little shout out to Athens. And people started swarming the bus because they'd never heard music like that before. And within about five minutes, the the police were there shutting me down. They're like, you can't play this music. Yeah. Done. So I've been to those yeah. countries. I don't like communism. I don't like Marxism. It doesn't work. It's horrible. What we're doing here seems to be like our government's like, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're not even that competent. But if you want to go see a show, you need a vaccine from Ticketmaster. And oh, well, yeah, you know, exactly, you can exactly. Do you want, but Keith, if you want to publish a book on Amazon, just make sure it's the right kind of book. You know, just a right. no big deal. There's a lot of latitude there. Yeah. And my guess, yeah, yeah but there's my not. guess is what's going on is we're kind of building a kind of a you know the Chinese now have their credit system, which is I always laugh because we have a we have a. FICA says, you know, we have a credit system in the U.S. You want to go borrow money. You, they have a score on you, no matter who you right. are. And it's really scary. And if you're not a good credit, you can't get money. And if you're Warren Buffett, they'll give you all the money you want, even if you don't ask for it. 
In China, they're building a social credit system, which is if you're a nice person, if you're honest, oh yeah, you get good things. This is another okay. thing so I'm you're, obsessed you're well with. Aware of this. <laughs> so what we're doing yeah. now is like we need a social credit system because the government wants social credit, and so we're going to do it, but we're going to do it through corporations. So I assume that's what we're building is some sort of corporate social right. credit system, and you've already seen that with banning people from the the YouTubes or the Twitters or something platforms. Yeah. Now the question is, is how well does that uh, work? Meaning has Alex Jones been, is he gone now completely or is he bigger than ever? No. And I don't know the answer. Yeah. I mean, he was on Rogan recently. He's bigger than so ever. So then I the think. question is how well is this social credit going to, going to work because they couldn't cancel Alex Jones. Yeah. I mean, and it's like anything when you ban it, it okay. makes it more interesting. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like now I definitely want to hear what this guy has to say. If he's so dangerous that he can't be on YouTube. Have you seen what's on YouTube? You know, it's like. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. It's that where they get the Streisand effect. Right. I've heard the kids call it. You kind of ban it and everyone's like, you know, so that's what happens with, with me. If they ban something, that's the first thing I'm going to check out. If these guys like ban this music, I'm like going to listen to it right away. And I'm assume I'm not alone. So I don't know how well this works, but. I'm I'm uh, I don't want to go fully black pill, but this is the direction I sense things. are. Yeah, going. I mean, I sometimes have joked that I feel like I'm in the prequel to V for Vendetta. You know, like if I if I was like living in a movie prequel, that would be it where I'm like, should I be yeah. stockpiling vinyl and like records? And, you know, I don't want to get rid of any of my hard books and I want to buy all of the classics. And I'm like, this is instinct is chilling to me that I want to be doing this. Well, but it makes sense because what they're going to do is, I mean, this is, I mean, we're so, or, you know, Brave New World Animal Farm slash, um, slash 1984. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I just keep scrolling between them. Right now, it seems like we're in kind of an animal farm. I know. That's this, what somebody you know, was with, saying the other day. They're like, we're now in the animal farm portion. <laughs> Yeah, I want to start. I want to start a band called the More Equal Animals. Do you think that would work? I don't play music, but I but I want to be a more equal animal. So um, funny. So right now, it seems like we're in a part. We're in a time where the more equal animals are kind of taking over and telling us what to do because they're more equal than we are. So all this stuff is. I do get a little nervous about it, but I again, I try to stay grounded. I try to keep in touch with reality. I try to. I mean. I, like every year I go, I go fly fishing and just try to go off the grid for a year and look at freaking stars yep. and get chased by a bear or something. So you feel like a human being. Yep. Yeah, I do that, but, but I'm, I'm sort of blessed and I got a lot of options. Yeah. You know, not everyone has those yep. options. It's true. I know. Well, I, I could talk to you for like seven hours, but I'm going to ask you the two questions that I ask everybody at the end of my podcast. What is your biggest defect of character? Oh, you want to know my biggest defect of mm -hmm. character? Um, and it can be however you interpret this question. It can be what you're working no, on. No, I, I, I think I, I, I've got some stuff I'm working on, that's, but it's just kind of like legit just ghosts that I'm trying to get rid of that I don't right, really know what right, they are. Right. But so there is stuff that I, I see is really there, but personally, my challenge is patience lately. It's patience and entitlement, and I am I'm kind of aggressive, and I mean I don't seem that way, but you know I 
I like to do stuff. I like stuff to work. I like things to happen. I like to make it happen. And it's very hard for me to let the world unfold. And what I've started to learn over the last several years is that there's an unfolding, a natural process of unfolding in life. And often I was trying to short circuit that process because I had to get ahead. And I, there's nothing wrong with me doing that, but it's, it, I've lost a lot. I've got to become a little more patient. That was, I had a rabbi tell me that. He's like, you should be patient. And it was like, I just got shot in the chest. I'm like, patience is for losers. I know. <laughs> I, like, I, I think oh, I God. literally just said that yesterday. You just named the two things that I'm really grappling with the most. I'm, I feel like I'm very much in the same place. I, my cousin was like, you just need to be patient. Like this is all unfolding in the time that it should. And I was like, <sighs> Patience is for people who don't get shit done, you know? (laughs) She's like, okay. (laughs) So that's a defect of mine. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of them. And what is your greatest asset? Did you freeze? What is is your greatest? Did it stop? What's your greatest asset? That's so funny. Speaking of narcissism, I ask you the one (laughs) question about what. Think of how you're great and it freezes. (laughs) You know, I'm going to, I'm going to answer this one and I, and I, I'm going to, because I've thought about it a lot because, um, you know, I'm getting older and, you know, you kind of reflect and I'm like, what the, and I can't do all the technical stuff now. They're like, Keith, you're so smart. I'm like, yeah, I'm smart at hiring smart grad students. That's my skill. Yeah. <laughs> I get these yeah. little geniuses to just, yeah, I'm like, I need a 12 year old to teach me Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Yeah. I'm good at hiring people. I am, uh, I am good at talking to people. I, I mm. and I, I meaning that if someone dropped me in the middle of Papua New Guinea right now with a Swiss Army knife and a pound of coffee, I could make it interesting. I could go talk mm-hmm. to people. I could I could make something interesting out of being there. I could learn something. I could make a friend. I think. Yep. And I don't know if that's really true, but the more I, I just. I kind of go, well, I, I seem to be able to talk to people. That's about it. But I, when I look back at my life, like I've been an academic my whole life and read and wrote, but really where I learned stuff is I just talked to lots and lots and lots of people. Some are elite, some are not elite, some are, you know, and, and you need to talk to both. Yep. And, and I learned as much, you know, I've learned as much talking to people at the, you know, at the bottom of the food chain as at the top of the food chain, because it's one big chain. There's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like the elites get to just sail away. I mean, I was just, I'm sorry, I keep saying the elites, you know, like. I mean, they do get to just sail away, but. <laughs> I, was in the, I, was in the, I was in the Caribbean this summer looking at the elites and, you know, the, how the, the oligarch lifestyle, it is funny down there. But I, I think I'm good at just talking to people. Hopefully. I love that. Yeah, you're very good. I mean, I've enjoyed it. I could talk for <laughs> five more hours. We'll have to have you back on to talk about. It. There's so much more I want to talk about. It just, uh, and I'm sorry that I'm so all over the place. I don't come in with like a set set of questions. I'm I love just like, it. I, li- I want to know everything. I live for that. This is this yeah. makes it more fun. So where can we find you and your book? Oh yeah, self promotion book is at local bookstore or Amazon if that's your choice and wkeithcampbell.com. We made a little website are narcissism you, lab if you're interested in some tests on there, but there are a lot of them out there. Are you on Twitter's or uh, any of those? I'm on Twitter, but I'm an academic, so don't look for any exciting or thought provoking tweets <laughs> from me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we will still look for you. <laughs> look for boring <laughs> vanilla tweets from me. 
That's fine. We'll take that's a, that's a nice reprieve from the hot takes. Yeah, I, I don't do hot takes. The, no, mm-hmm. I might do one though. No. I might start doing hot takes again. Might be time. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy your holidays and the rest of this year. Stay stay safe and um, thank you so much for taking this time with us. And everybody should buy his book. And we will definitely chat again in the new year. I think we'll have to have you back on and talk about. Once on the other side of all of this uh, craziness, we can talk about conspiracies Ooh. and stuff like that. It'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really thank enjoyed you. it. So thank you. It's time for the weekly check-in with Bridget and Cousin Maggie. It's our last check-in of the year, Maggie. Wow. We made it. Well. Kind of. Two more weeks. Don't count our chickens. <laughs> I'm just saying we made it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Another year of walk-ins welcome. It's our first full year. It is our first full year. No. It's like past our... No. It's our second, second full year. year. How yeah. long have we... Yeah, it has to. We made it to 100 <laughs> episodes. How long have we been doing this? It's like we started in October of 2018. Of 2018. Yeah, yeah. Second full year. <laughs> just oh my kidding. God. <laughs> it's been a long year. <laughs> it's been a great year. Well, we're excited to get to know you, listeners, and it's been great. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for sharing us with your friends. Yeah. We're growing. Tiny little podcast that could. I love this podcast. I really do. I've learned a lot from it, just from all the guests, and it's just been so interesting. I know. I always look forward to next year and what it will hold and who will come on. I have some already great guests lined up. Our first guest out of the gates is a comedian who has the darkest sense of humor, and I love her so much. Awesome. She has a special coming out, so she'll be our first one out of the gates. Something funny and dark. Yeah. I think that it's so funny, the state of comedy right now, and I'm glad to see like Andrew Schultz has a four-day special coming on Netflix. Uh Uh-huh. And I see all of this as promising Mm -hmm. because I think that people who are in the space that we've been in there's just more of us and everybody just needs to start being louder. And now perhaps they'll feel like they can be now that they're not going to be met with the butt Trump. Yeah. Everyone needs to get a little less precious about their feelings. Yeah. And it's dark times. <laughs> it should be perfectly ripe for dark. humor. Yeah. This is dark humor time. People come on, get on board. People <laughs> don't take yourself and life so seriously. That's our message. And that's it. (laughs) That's how we live our lives. (laughs) That's the, that's the end of this. That's all I've got. No, I'm good. I'm excited for the new year. I'm excited to take an actual break and I'm going to handcuff my hands together and force myself to log out (laughs) and actually take a break. I loved your newsletter today. The Phetasy newsletter is starting to become a thing. And this is, I, you talked about doing the holidays alone. And I loved it. I thought it was so great. It was very, um, I think it provides helpful tips for people, but just kind of embracing the solitude and embracing going, learning to go from loneliness to solitude and what an important lesson that was for you. And, and I just, I think it's, I think it would, will help people. So I'm kind of like, maybe you should post it somewhere else too. No. But what if people? This pe- is like but the it's olden like, days. You can't. What if people like want to sign, want to 
like you can't go I back know. and get an old newsletter. I know that's the cool thing about it. You've got to be on. <laughs> you've got to be on board. I know, but. It's like the good old days of radio when you just would listen to something and that was it. Or you'd miss it. No, I can post it somewhere. I'll post it in, um, like on Patreon and open it up or yeah. something. In the early days as you're building your newsletter audience, I feel like that kind of thing will help yeah. people. Oh, this is what I'd be getting. Yeah. I, I just, yeah, I, I just idea. really liked it. Good idea. Maggie has another genius idea. <laughs> I'm bad at this. I'm like, get on my newsletter or else. If you missed it, too bad. <laughs> to like the hundred people who have signed up for your newsletter. <laughs> That's how it was with fantasy.com. But it all lived on fantasy. You could go see it. No, but it was, I'm very much like that. It's the perfect end to this narcissistic discussion. I'm like, if you're not following my every move, I can't make sure you keep up. If you're not paying attention to what I'm doing, you missed it too bad. <laughs> What do you mean, narcissism? Oh, you mean I should have a place where people can go and see my old stuff once they finally do find In their me? Own oh, time. I see. Okay. We still don't have that place. No, we still don't. It used to be fantasy, but uh, my dog barking outside. Oh, our guest is here. Okay, so we got to wrap this up. We it was had, a quick, quick check in. It was a quick check in, but that it was a long podcast. Yes. Sorry, and, Maggie. Uh, happy holidays and happy new year to everyone. We'll happy see you on the flip side. Happy holidays. Happy new year. I can't wait. Try and hang in there. Just get in touch with that inner solitude. I will post my, I will post my newsletter piece somewhere. Yeah. I I'll think post, it'll help. I'll post it on Fetacy and Patreon and open it up. Yeah. And let the people read it. But get on the newsletter. Give it to your people. But get on the newsletter. This is the kind of thing that gets sent out. And I think it's really good. <laughs> Except I don't know where to tell you where to sign up for that either. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the Fetacy <laughs> store. And you will you can also post a link when you post it on Twitter of like, here's my Yes, that's piece. a great idea. Yes. <laughs> Every- she, she likes to keep her ways to find her as hidden as possible. <laughs> Everything is a mystery and an exhausting effort. All right. I'm sorry. Tune in next week for another riveting episode that will change your life, help you get out of your own way, and solve all the world's problems. I want to thank our composer, Jared Elias, my co-producer and cousin, Maggie, and all of you out there listening. This has been Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Fettesy. I'm Bridget Fettesy, and you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's the dumbest line. (laughs)